0: Well, good evening. So glad to see so many of you here. And for those of you watching from wherever you are, thanks for joining us as well. Traditions are important. They play a part in all of our lives, especially when it comes to days that are either holidays or holy days. Traditions become part of the experience that we look forward to every year, and they help us to to rehearse the meaning and remind ourselves of what these days are really about. And I was thinking about traditions around days like this, and I was reminded that uh, 15 years ago this summer, my my wife and I got married, and we went back and visited her family for the first time at Christmas. And I had grown up in Las Vegas. I had never, ever seen a white Christmas before, and that was about to change because she lived in western New York, and western New York is kind of like this. It's it's snowy. And so we, we flew in, we landed in the airport in Buffalo, and within two hours, a blizzard hit. And, um, and then something new happened to me that I'd never experienced before. They introduced what's called a driving ban. Like literally, it was against the law to drive because it was unsafe. And so we were stuck in her parents' house for three days. And so I got stir crazy. And so what else is there to do in the middle of a blizzard in Buffalo but go see Niagara Falls? And so I convinced my wife, um, I'm not sure how, to go with me. And so it was seven degrees outside. It was snowing, it was windy, and the mist blowing off the falls was like freezing on our faces, and she was, she was less than happy with me that day that she had come along for that ride. But eventually we got to Christmas, we were there over the holiday season, and I got to go through all of her traditions. And so we started at her parents' church, and we went to Christmas Eve service, and I said, okay, what's next? She said, okay, we're going to this person's house for Gumbo. And I was like, okay, cool, fun. I like Gumbo. So we went to Gumbo and I said, is that it? And she's like, oh, no, no, we're just getting started. She's like, so we're going to my friend's house to play games. And I'm like, man, it's already like nine o'clock. Like, this is gonna be a long night. So we end up at her friend's house and we play games for two hours. And I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit like I'm starting to fade a little bit. It's like 11 p.m. I go, are we going home now? She's like, no, 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 we're going back to the church. I go, excuse me? She's like, we're going to midnight mass. And I was like, midnight church? Um, and so we went to midnight mass. It got about 1 And I'm like, please. You know, dear Jesus, let us be going home. And she's like, no, 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 we're going to Denny's now. So we're sitting at Denny's outside Buffalo, New York at 2.30 in the morning. And I have wondering, what did I get myself into when it comes to these traditions? And so I said, finally, at 3 o'clock, can we we go home, please? It's 3 a.m., and so we drove home in another blizzard, went to bed about four, and then her parents decided, since they went to bed at eight, that we would open presents at like 7 a.m. So on three hours of sleep, we're doing presents and breakfast, and I turned up at some point and I said, why do you do this to yourself? Like, this is, this is a lot of work. Like, this is exhausting. But, but as she walked me through that night, each of those traditions had a backstory. There was a reason why all of those things got stacked up so that that was Christmas for her. So that brings us to to, to tonight, to Good Friday. To understand the reason why it's good, you have to understand the backstory. And there are so many traditions that are a part of the holy experience that if we don't understand the backstory too, we'll just think this is a bunch of effort and a bunch of planning and a bunch of work but not understand why. And so tonight, what I'm hoping to do is to help you understand the sacrifice that was made for us, that we needed to be made for us, that is the reason why we would call a day like this good. If you've been around Cornerstone for the last several weeks, we've been walking along a journey that really culminates tonight. We've been in a series for six weeks that we wrapped up last Sunday called Leaving Egypt. And we've been talking about how do we find freedom from the things that hold us back. And the source of our freedom at the center of tonight. So if you got a copy of the note sheet and you want to take notes or you're watching from home and you want to type on your notes app, here's the central idea that I'm hoping to drive home tonight. We need to remember what Jesus did to set us free. And the reason why we need to remember what Jesus did to set us free is that when you've been free for a certain period of time, when you get some distance from an event, the, the, the reasons for it can get foggier. You know this because in your family at Christmas or Thanksgiving or maybe even Easter, you have traditions and yet you don't know why you have those traditions. And so unless you remember the source of that and go back to the why behind it, you begin to lose appreciation for it. It becomes just what you do. And so I don't ever want what we do on Good Friday to just be, it is what we do because it's the Friday before Easter. I want us to remember what Jesus did to set us free so that we have full and deep appreciation for this. And one of the reasons that we do Good Friday, not every church does it, and there's no like verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt have a Good Friday service, it's not there. But the reason that we do it is in order for us to fully appreciate what Easter is and the resurrection we need to spend time reflecting on the death. Because we'll cover this on Sunday. You don't get resurrection without execution. And so I want to talk to you today about what Jesus did to set us free. And to do that, I want to draw three connections between Passover in the Old Testament and what we talked about last Sunday, if you were here, and Good Friday. So three, three simple points today, three connections. The first one is this. Jesus is the ultimate passover sacrifice. Jesus becomes the the ultimate passover sacrifice. There's this connection that's inescapable when you read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus and you know what happens in Exodus with the Passover. Let me just give you a little bit of a short recap that there was an event recorded in the book of Exodus chapter 12 that led to the people being freed from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. And many of the symbols, many of the components of that Passover sacrifice that was rehearsed every year culminated in what Jesus did in a way that was the final and ultimate sacrifice that was needed. And I wanna show you some of these because I think a lot of you have never made the connection before. In Exodus chapter 12, verse three, we read, this is God speaking through Moses. Tell the whole community of Israel That on the 10th day of this month, it's the month of Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, they must each select an animal of the flock, according to their father's families, one animal per family. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month, then the whole assembly of Israel will will slaughter the animals at twilight. So what would happen is that the, the Jews on the very first Passover, and they rehearsed this every year, was they would bring a sheep for four days into their home. It'd become like a pet. And if you have kids or been around kids, it doesn't take four days for your kids to get attached to an animal. It takes about four minutes. So by the end of the four days, the kids and the family would be attached to it. Our kids brought home uh, guinea pigs for spring break this year. And by the end of 10 days, they didn't want to let them go. So I can't imagine these kids at, at four days. And, and so at the end of four days, that, that sheep that had been in their home would be slaughtered as the, the Passover sacrifice. And then we'll talk about in a little bit what would happen with that animal's remains. The similar thing happens with Jesus. In Luke 19, we read that now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king, they said, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Jesus, in a parallel way, spends four days in Jerusalem before he becomes the sacrifice on the cross. So there's a parallel in the amount of time. The lambs that were brought into the city... If you lived in Jerusalem, they would have been brought in through the sheep gate. The lambs were actually out in Bethlehem, which if you know Jesus is born, makes it all the more that he is the lamb, because that's where you would have gone to, to get your sheep. The sheep came into the sheep gate, and on Friday, the first Friday, the good Friday, Jesus walked to the place he'd be crucified called Golgotha, out the very same sheep gate. So you're just seeing all of these parallels Exodus 12, later on, says, God speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt, and on that night, the night of Passover, I will strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. He says, I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against the gods of Egypt. We covered this last week, if you're with us on Sunday. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be the distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so what happened is the families who killed that sheep had been in their home, they took the blood and they spread the blood around the three sides of the door frame so that they were under the blood. And those who were under the blood of the lamb on the doorpost were saved. The Passover went over them. Literally, they were passed over. And their children lived, the firstborn. Now for us, those under the blood of the Lamb on the cross are saved. The first statement is made about Jesus when he begins his public ministry in John 129 is said by John, his cousin. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, "Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Later on, Peter, one of his closest disciples would say, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So when you consider all of the parallels, and I had to stop somewhere because I don't get a full sermon on Good Friday. I get a half sermon. Jesus is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. He comes and he fulfills everything that is started in Passover. That's needed to be repeated every year. He comes once and for all and does that totally. So that all of us who are under his blood can experience salvation. The second connection between Passover and Good Friday is this, that that Jesus paid a great price for our freedom. It was not a a small act or a small price or a small amount. He gave everything for us to be free. And, And that's because, like the Israelites in Egypt, our slavery to sin was great. So the sacrifice had to be great. I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, and I said, there is this common belief, and it even infects people in the church, that what God comes to do is to make us good people. What God wants to do for us is he wants us to be good people. And I said, that's just simply not true. God did not come to make us who were bad people into good people. He came to make us who were dead in our sins, alive in Christ. And if it took the Son of God leaving heaven, coming to earth, and being brutally executed on the cross. That's how high and how bad things were, that it took him doing that. And I want to remind you, without going into totally graphic detail, because we have a younger audience tonight, some elements of this. The first thing that happened to Jesus when he was arrested is that there was a crown of thorns that was put on him that was not normal for execution, for crucifixion. Matthew 27, 29 tells us about this, that they mocked Jesus by putting a crown of thorns on him and a purple robe, mocking him, calling him a king, but not actually treating him as one. And so the pain began, the bleeding began with the crown of thorns. Those of you who have uh, migraines can relate to this. It was an excruciating headache. In fact, the word excruciating that we have in our English language has its roots in the Greek word for excruciating which only came about because of crucifixion. So whenever you hear that word excruciating, it goes back to crucifixion in its origin. It continues that after Jesus was arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced to death, Pilate in John 19.1 ordered him to be flogged. And so he was whipped 39 times. 40 minus one, as the standard was with the Romans. And this was not like an Indiana Jones whip. They're releasing a New Indiana Jones movie. Apparently Harrison Ford doesn't have enough money for retirement, they're making another movie. This is not an Indiana Jones whip. This whip included on its lashes pieces of bone and metal. That with each whip filleted the back of Jesus. If we had lived in modern times, he would have been rushed to a hospital and given a blood transfusion based upon blood loss, before he even goes to the cross. But he didn't have that opportunity. The cross beam was put on his shoulders, and we know that he carried it at least part of the way to the cross. John 19, 16 through 18 records it. And that cross beam weighs about 100 pounds. Many of you who've worked out have probably squatted 100 pounds. But you probably haven't done it after you were flogged. And so he carried that cross as far as he could, and then a man named Simon from Cyrene was pulled out of the crowd, and he continued to carry it. When they finally got to Golgotha after going out of the sheep gate. Six to eight-inch nails were nailed through his ankle to hold up his feet and through his wrists. Historically, we've, we've, we've seen it described as the palm but the Journal of the American Medical Association, when verifying that Jesus actually died, points out that it could not have been his hand because it would not have held the weight. He was, he was pierced between his radius and his ulna just underneath his wrist. And I won't go into the, the, the worst part of crucifixion, but uh, the worst part of crucifixion involves your lungs. Typically, you would die a very slow death as liquid filled your lungs. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in 400 AD, but it was perfected by the Romans. Crucifixion was a brutal way to die, and it was intended to create fear and compliance within an oppressed people. You were crucified naked outside of a city near a major highway so that anybody who walked by knew don't mess with the Romans or they will do this to you. And so that's how Jesus paid a price for us. And it wasn't him being the victim of an oppressive empire. It was a substitute. That he took on himself the price that we should have paid for our sins. That he stood in our place and took on the weight of all evil, past, present, and future. And because of that, the third piece Jesus invites us now into freedom via a great exchange. If you compare the story of Passover and the account of crucifixion, what you have is you have the people of Israel saying, hey, we're going to sacrifice an animal, and under that that blood, we're going to be free. And with the cross, Jesus is going to be sacrificed, and under his blood, we're going to be free. But an exchange has to take place. And if you've been with us for our Egypt series we've been talking about this, that for the people of Israel to step into freedom, they had to leave Egypt behind. They couldn't stay in Egypt after the Passover. They had to leave Egypt to go into freedom. And the same thing is true for us. What we do is we're not currently in Egypt, literally, but many of us are metaphorically. And so what we do is the one thing we bring to the equation, the relationship with Jesus is our sin. We bring our brokenness, we bring our sin, we do all that we've do, we bring all that we've done that is against what God wants and against his ways, that is selfishness and sinfulness. And we give Jesus our sin and in return in our hands, he places forgiveness and righteousness and freedom. It is this beautiful exchange. I promise you, we're getting the better of the deal. We give him all of our mess and he gives us the most beautiful gift in the world. And when you recognize all that he has been through and all that he has done and the fact that we do nothing to earn it or deserve it. All we do is we bring our mess and say, hey, nobody else wants this. Do you want this? I don't even want this. And he takes it and he redeems it and he transforms it and he makes us new. Here's the sticking point though. Many of us refuse to unclench our fists. We refuse to let go in order to receive. If my hands are clenched around something, I'm hoping to not lose it, but I'm not aware of the fact that I can't receive anything new. And the best illustration I've heard of this was told to me in a story that I'm not sure is, is historically true or not or accurate. So you can Google this all you want. I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, but I think, it's, I think it speaks truth to our situation. In India, there was a community that had a monkey problem. If you've ever been somewhere that has monkeys, you know that monkeys can just wreak havoc. I spent time in sub-Saharan Africa with, in a section of the community where monkeys had just taken over. They ruled the place. And so this community wanted to get rid of the monkeys, but they didn't want to kill them. So the idea was that they would take a coconut, they would carve at the top of the coconut, and they would pull the top out, and in the coconut, they'd put a small piece of banana And what the monkey would do is the monkey would put his hand in the coconut and grab the banana but then as he got ready to pull his hand out he wouldn't be able to remove the banana. Now any logical person says there are bananas other place leave the banana and fight to win another day. The problem is the monkey won't do that. The monkey insists on holding on to the banana and essentially is trapped because the coconut is tied to a tree. And so Via this method, the community was able to remove all of the monkeys and relocate them somewhere else because the monkey couldn't let go of the very thing that was keeping it in bondage. So my question for you is this. In order to be free, what do you need to let go of and entrust to Jesus? Where is your hand stuck in the coconut? you're holding on to the very thing that's keeping you from all that God wants to give you and do in you one of Jesus' closest friends John wrote these words he said if we say we have no sin we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to sorry faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All we have to do is is let go. Is open our hands and receive the gift he has for us. And so last Sunday if you were here with us as we concluded our leaving Egypt series I invited you to begin thinking about something. To begin thinking about where do you need to leave something behind on the road to Easter? Where do you need to let go of something that you may know really well and feel very close to or very attached to that is keeping you from all that God has for you? And so if you were here, I invited you to bring a symbol of what Egypt represents in your life, past or present. And some of you, I saw you walking in, you had extra things in your hands tonight. Others of you were like, oh my goodness, I forgot. And others of you are like, Scott, I don't even know what you're talking about. So that's why we gave, we tried to give every one of you an index card. And that index card is an opportunity for you to write or draw what Egypt represents in your life. Put another way, what that banana is inside that coconut that you're holding to that's keeping you from all that God has for you. And so tonight is gonna be an interactive experience. We've intentionally set aside longer time at the end of the service to be able to respond to all that Christ did for us. And so here's what we're gonna do. In a little bit, we're gonna invite you to move to the center of the room if you're here. If you're watching from home, I love that you're watching from home, but there are some days where it's just not the same, and this is one of those days, so I'm sorry. But we're gonna ask you when you're ready to move to the center of the aisle and come down the center and there are two trash cans here. And in each trash can, there's a slit in the cover for you to put something in there. We've done it that way. That way you're not seeing what everybody else has put in there. So it's public. You're gonna do this in front of everybody, but it's private. Your stuff is only gonna be in there under the curtain. And so we're gonna invite you to bring something Maybe you brought it with you. Maybe you're gonna write it down right now that you need to let go of so you can receive all that Christ has for you. And some of you, that may be salvation. You you need to bring your sin and receive his forgiveness. You need to bring your brokenness and receive his wholeness and his transformation. Others of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time. And so it's stepping into that and going deeper into that and trusting God more with that. What we're going to ask you to do is come down the middle aisle, drop those in the bucket, and then when you leave to go towards the edges and on these tables that are going to be uncovered right now by some of our team, we have communion elements waiting for you. So there's two tables over here and there's two tables over here. And so as you leave, you're going to take with you the communion elements that are the symbol of what is going in your hands. You're leaving something and then you're going to receive something. So what we're going to do right now is we're just going to give you some silence, be a little bit of music playing. And when you're ready to respond, the invitation is open. And at a point, the band will come up and they'll begin to lead us in a number of songs. There'll be four songs. Jake will let you know what the final one is so you have some time. So we're going to just take a few minutes here. I'm going to pray. And then we're gonna give you an opportunity to respond as the Lord leads you. Jesus, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And we pray that today we might remember what you did to set us free. You died a gruesome death. You paid a terrible price because our sin was that great. Our need was that profound. And so with that fresh awareness, we say thank you. Thank you for coming and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for coming when we weren't even seeking you and giving your life for us. Thank you for loving us in the midst of our least lovable moments. And thank you for dying for us that there might be no condemnation for those who are in you. You conquered sin, death, shame, and everything that was done to us or by us that didn't honor you. I pray that we might release everything that we're holding on to but you and receive all that you want to give us this day and in the days to come. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.